emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend and Bear Sage Institute colleague, Ed Kless. On today's show, folks, we're doing another installment of Memorable Mentors, Clayton Christensen. How's it going, Ed? Going good, Ron. Looking forward to this show. Memorable mentors is always fun. Usually, it's we're sort of like the Catholic Church. Usually, me- me- memorable mentors, you got to be dead a while, you know, before they declare you a saint. Right. But, but in this case, pretty easy to declare Clayton Christensen a memorable mentor once he passed in what, January 23rd, I believe. Right. The age of 67 from complications from cancer. Um, and he graduated high school in 1970, and then he went to Brigham Young University. Um, he graduated, he got a degree in economics there, mm-hmm. and then he went on to uh, Oxford, uh, where he was a Rhodes Scholar. <laughs> and he was also, he served as a missionary in South Korea between 1971 and 1973. Yeah. And that's when it was a poor country, Ed, relatively. Oh, <laughs> certainly yeah, South relative, Korea. Yeah, certainly relative yeah. to where it is now. Um, and then, of course, he got his MBA at Harvard and his PhD, and he was a university professor since 1992. Yes, and fluent in Korean when he was there. Learned to be fluent, which yes, is amazing. That, that's right. That's right, because that's, that's a difficult language. <laughs> For sure. And he was also 6'8". <laughs> so a giant in management thinking and a tall guy. Yes. And his his son, who was two inches taller than him, played on the Duke University National Championship team in yeah. 2001. I saw so that. I remember, I remember that. It was, it, was, it, was a, it, was a, it was a good year for them Dukes. Yeah, that, that's Matthew, right? I think that's his eldest son. He, he has five kids that he survived them. Uh, along with his wife, no grandchildren, at least that I, I didn't see grandchildren. Did you? I don't. I not listed, but I'm sure he has grandchildren. I would be, I would be very surprised if they. Yeah. It, no, not nothing I read said anything about that. Probably just keeping it private would be my guess. Could be, could be. Um, you know, he was diagnosed with um, follicular cancer in the spring of 2010 which is the cancer that took his father. Okay. And um, that's when he began to write, how will you measure your life? And immediately after started writing that while his cancer was in remission, he suffered a stroke (laughs) and he basically had to relearn how to speak one word at a time. So he had some challenge 2007. He had a heart attack. (laughs) So, yeah. Yeah. Um, but just just a, a great thinker on my list. He's you know certainly in the top five, right up there with Peter Drucker, Gary Hamill, uh, Mintzberg, Henry Mintzberg, um, 
other few others I can't think of, but he, he, he would be right up there. In terms of management thinkers. Yeah. 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 No, absolutely certain. Uh, he, he just had a huge impact. And, and one of the ways that you can sort of judge that is by the number of people who talk about disruption and uh, disruptive innovation who have no clue that it's Clayton, Clayton Christensen. Right. Because <laughs> – because the concepts are so ubiquitous in a lot of ways, but as we're going to talk about, often often wrongly thought of. Right. And, and you know, the other thing, uh, another reason why he's a mentor is, of course, he persuaded our thinking, right? I mean, had a profound mm-hmm. effect on, on our thinking and the worldview that we hold, uh, at least when it comes to looking at uh, businesses. And I thought he was really good at taking something that you kind of understand on a macro level, right? He wasn't the first person to talk about disruption. I mean, Joseph Schumpeter, the gales of creative destruction, right? Uh, But he was the first person to bring it into a micro and look at it from the lens of theory in an individual business or an industry. And how, was, did it, how, did it, how did it apply? We called it a pl- applied theory. Actually, not only did, was he a great theoretician, but he was great at applying those theories to specific cases. Exactly. And, you know, the, that's the other thing that I really appreciate. And this theme runs through all of his books, including a big part of how you measure your life is just the importance of theory. And he said, you should not have an opinion. The theory should have an opinion. <laughs> And I, I just absolutely love that. A, th- a good theory doesn't change its mind. Well, let's kick it off and talk a little bit about that because he's when he says theory, he's got a very specific notion of it. It's not, it's not exactly like a scientific theory the way that that you would classify it in science, like a, the the theory of relativity or the theory of gravity, right? He 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 just he is he is basically saying the, a, a a framework, a lens through which you view certain outcomes, so that you you're you're testing cause and effect, predicted cause and effect. If this happens, then this will happen. Right. I mean, he, he, in some senses, it does parallel the scientific method, at least, of developing a theory. You know, you categorize, you explain, you predict, you confirm your prediction. Mm-hmm. And, and the other thing that I really always appreciated about him was he, even when he developed the theory, he wanted the anomalies, always search for the anomalies. You know, where does your theory not work? Because mm-hmm. that, that will help you refine it. Um, and so, but, you know, he, one of the things that he constantly talks about, the metaphor he loves, he's, is, uh, especially when it comes to business books, you know, the appeal of easy answers and the whole, you know, we did a whole show on correlation versus causation. He says, you can look at a bird and, you know, and you go, wow, look how they fly. And then you, you strap on wings and feathers and try it yourself. Um, didn't work too good. He said, but ostriches have wings and feathers, but they can't fly. Bats have wings, but no feathers, and they're great flyers. And flying squirrels have neither, but they do <laughs> right. all right. You know, so we you have to have the theory. I mean, we always talk about how great, you know, there's nothing more practical than a good theory, right? It keeps planes in the air. It keeps buildings standing. And he had that framework. Yeah, and sadly, though, is is how often do we hear, all right, enough with the theory, guys. Let's just, you know, tell me how, tell me what to do. Tell me what to do. And and he said, we need to stop this, this, you know, chasm or this fight between 
theory and data. He said, the theory guides the data that you collect. It guides what you measure. You know, Einstein said this and Karl Popper and a whole bunch of other thinkers. There, there's no conflict there, but it's just that, you know, as he used to love to say, conclusive data is available only about the past. If you want to peer into the future, you need a theory. Well, which is right. And then, but yet what has, that has taken and manifested itself in businesses in God, we trust all others bring data, which, <laughs> right. Which is, yeah. I, what I, and I get that. And that's, I, I certainly think that you can use d- data as evidence of a problem. We talked about that in our show when we, when we talk about the value conversation, right. it's one of the ways that you can, you can convince that there's, there's evidence of a problem in the past, which is to prove it conclusively with data, that there is data that indicates, yes, this is a problem. We're having too many back orders or we're, 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 we're missing deadlines or whatever those things are. You can go to the data and say, and confirm that. But what you can't do, and this was, I think, Christensen's great insight is say, all right, if you want to, if you're going to tell me what's going to happen in the future with regard to your product and innovation, bring data to prove that it's going to be successful. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's what th- that unfortunately is, is, is far too often what, what people are, are tasked to do in a lot of cases, you know, this whole ROI thing that I've gotten on my soapbox an awful lot about this. We had to prove that we have ROI. Well, the point is, is we don't know if we're going to have ROI. That's why we're going to test this out. We don't know. We don't right. know. Right. No, that's a, that's a, that's a great point. It's another theme that runs through his work is, you know, I, I was reading something that he wrote that said, you know, investors need to be patient for growth, but impatient for profit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, you know, cat, he said capital that seeks growth before profits is bad capital. He said, but you see both types of capital in the market because when a good strategy has been found, then investors need to change and be impatient for growth and patient for profit. Right. And you could change, things can change based on that. You know, what, one of the, the things that struck me as I was preparing for the show, and, and again, this is something that appears multiple times in his work, is just this notion that a, a business plan is a plan for learning, not one for executing a preconceived strategy. Yes. And he calls it an emergent strategy. Correct. And, and this is a really important concept, right? You, we have to plan to be, lo- to, to be wrong and then learn what is right as fast as possible. <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, what's that line you always say, Ed? The, the plan is useless, but planning is critical. Yeah, plan, plans, yeah, plans, plans are worthless. Planning is essential. Right. And that, you know, that's a, 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 a quote from Eisenhower, at least in theory, haven't confirmed that one either getting back to some of our, you know, misattributed quote problems from <laughs> previous shows, but sounds good anyway. And, and, and I, and I do think that there's, there's, there is some wisdom in that, right? It's the, it's the process of developing the plan that has the value, not the plan itself, because the, the plan is individual to every scenario and has to be, has to be taken as such. But I, I do love this concept and notion that it, this, this is, it's about testing. It's about learning and then adapting our behavior and adapting that what we can do as quickly as possible. And this is why I think to some extent, why, why the, the, the whole concept of, of, um, uh, uh, agile project management mm-hmm. has been re- has been relatively successful in that it does take the, some of those concepts into into play. Now I've seen that abused too, and that we've documented on this show. I've talked about oftentimes there's a lot of agile people who basically are, don't have any plan at all. 
right? So, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> we're agile. They have a fancy we're name shop. for it. Yeah, we have, have a fancy, fancy name, name for it. it. It's no plan. No. <laughs> and it is That's abused. Great. But yeah, no, it's good stuff. Hey, look, we're already up against a break here on Crazy. We're going to be digging into Clayton Christensen's life and work as, on our show today as one of our memorable mentors. But want to remind you that you can get a hold of Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. The Patreon site is out there for those of you interested in bonus episodes as well as commercial-free episodes of this show. But right now, for those of you listening on the regular methodologies and podcasting, a word from our sponsor. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah 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 Whatever, and four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you need never have to hear my voice again for a commercial free version of the soul of enterprise go to patreon.com slash tsoe and subscribe now we're always talking business talk to an expert call now toll free 866-472-5790 that's 866-472-5790 voice america business network tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit us on the web at the soul of you can also chat with us on twitter using hashtag ask tsoe now back to the soul of enterprise well welcome back everybody we're talking about memorable mentor clayton christensen and then he wrote a few books uh i think around 12 in total the big one, of course, Innovator's Dilemma, which came out in 97. And just to give a little bit of background, Andy Grove stood up with a copy of this book at Comdex and declared it's the most important book he'd read in a decade. And Steve Jobs regularly quoted the book, as did, by the way, George Gilder. He was a huge fan of the Innovator's Dilemma. In fact, I think that's how I learned about it was from George Gilder. The Economist named it one of the six best business books ever published back in June of 2011. In fact, that got me so curious. I had to go look, what were the other five? We'll talk about that on the bonus episode. Okay. Okay. Yep. <laughs> um, but initially, 
Christensen used the term disruptive technologies rather than disruptive innovation. And he, he uh, became very uncomfortable because the theory of disruptive innovation became overused and misapplied. It, it's not a synonym for anything new or transformative. A true disruptive innovation appealed only to a niche market, appeared less attractive to the incumbent uh, that it eventually usurped. And it was usually cheaper in price because it was kind of an inferior product to what was going on with the incumbent because it served a different niche. And that, that became that became lost as that term, you know, got into the popular culture. And he started calling it in a nod to Daniel Kahneman type one and type two innovations, because he said, you know, that would be vague enough to force people to read and understand my work more closely <laughs> rather than yeah. this bastardization. And, you know, uh, Kahneman and Tversky, uh, they originally labeled behavioral economics prospect theory. So people wouldn't, in case it bombed, then it just would be written off and forgotten. <laughs> and that's why they called it prospect theory. There was no rhyme or reason for that other than just giving it a, you know, nebulous title. Interesting. Uh, so, yeah, it, it really is. And, and uh, he, he, he told an interviewer about this, this problem with the theory being corrupted. There are criticisms that are very important. He said, never does a theory just pop out in complete form. The first appearance of the theory is half-baked. Then it improves when people say it doesn't account for this or this is an anomaly and it doesn't explain that. It's, and it's very important to have people willing to criticize it for that purpose. But it, the theory itself, the disruptive innovation, really did become distorted, didn't it, from what he originally intended? Oh, yes, absolutely. And and I, I think that, that that's probably still to this day one of the, the biggest problems, because as I said, there are a lot of people come in and say, well, we, we need we need some disruptive innovation around here. And which is just counter or antithetical to what Christensen was talking about. And and this is, people, you know, a large organization saying we need to be disruptive. Well, that's the point. You can't. That's your dilemma, you see. <laughs> this, yeah. is, this, this is what it's this is what it's called the <laughs> dilemma so you got this dilemma so what is the what's the dilemma well the dilemma is is that you have you have a finite amount of capital or resources that you have to allocate and when you're an incumbent business there's really there's a couple things you can do with it but for, for the most part two broad categories one is to do what everybody says and that is listen to your current customers and improve your current offerings based on what your current customers are telling you needs improvement. Yep. And those things are innovations in many cases. Sometimes those things are quite helpful to especially those, those customers. And it makes sense to do that. Now, the challenge is, of course, is that with what and where the theory comes in is that where you're going to be disrupted is, is along the lower portion of the, of, of your business. So the classic example that he uses is uh, you know, IBM and computers. You know, there were five, uh, what, what did uh, Tom Watson say? The, 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 that yeah. when, when the computer came out, it's got a worldwide market of five. Right. Right. And what, what, what happened there was, you know, at first computers were multi-million dollar devices that took years to get to become experts on. And, the focus, of course, of IBM was to improve those products to its business customers, and that's what they did. Well, along comes this 
PC personal computer, which is based on this eight, 8880, or I'm sorry, 8088 processor, going with a nod to Andy Grove on that, right, at, at the folks at Intel, which is a piece of crap from the from the mainframe perspective, <laughs> right? This is just Absolutely. nothing important. Yep. It's just a, this little, like, that's, and I, I remember working with a guy quite extensively who, toys, these are just toys, Ed. These, 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 <laughs> these computers are just toys. Yep. Because he had spent the better part of his life understanding the, the mainframe stuff. And that, and what I think people misinterpret is, is it's not a breakthrough innovation of your current stuff. It's something that along the periphery, usually at the lower end of the market, that overtakes you by storm because they are more nimble, because they can make improvements a lot faster, and in all, and then ultimately out innovate you. So your dilemma is: do you put money into improving your current products, or do you put money into the high risk strategy of developing these solutions on the low end, which often eat, eat away at your profitability because they cost you a lot more to to develop by their very nature because they're they're innovative and they're less they're they're less efficient. And at the at the same time, but the, they they degrade your profit. So of course you don't do that. And of course, this is what the innovators' d- dilemma is: is that if you if you're in a large organization or an industry, where are you going to allocate your capital? Well, it's going to be allocated toward making improvements to your current product, not disrupting yourself with a lower end product. Right. And and what's really interesting is usually that disruptor is actually going after people who were non-consuming. They weren't customers. Yeah. So they didn't, you didn't want them anyway. Yeah. Non-consumption is, is a, is a great opportunity to look for people that aren't even thinking about using your product because it's too inconvenient. It's too expensive. It's got, it does too many things that, you know, whatever it might be. And that was another point you made, you know, Andy Grove did tell Christensen, he said that you, you mislabeled your theory instead of disruptive innovation that should have been called crummy technologies. <laughs> <laughs> and that probably would have been a little bit easier to, to think about. Yeah. That, well, and just getting back to this, there's one of the things that he points out is that there are three factors that prohibit downward mobility for the current incumbent firms. The, the first is the, the, the promise of, of upmarket margins. The second is the simultaneous upmarket movement of many of the company's customers. And the third is the difficulty of cutting costs to move down market. So the, if you think, of it, 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 and what I think I love about this theory is it's, it's a great example of systems thinking where you do everything correctly, but still lose. Right, right. In, in the game, you play the game as you're supposed to play the game, but ultimately what it means is you lose. And I, I just want to give one more, I think, neat example that he talks about, and that is the example of, let's say, the New York Times. And the, the, the first problem that they solved, of course, is get, getting news out to people. But what did they want to do when they listened to their current customers? They, be, they began to expand into other areas. And hence, you know, people wanted to buy and sell stuff. So they did classified ads and get a job. So we have the, 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 ad, you know, the, the ads for jobs and all this stuff. And newspapers added on more and more functions around the stuff that the, 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 their, their target customer the problem was is then with the next level of technology that came through well all of the, there and if you look at this this the, all of these these things that newspapers were doing they started to get picked off one by one so oh, you man. had you had zillow 
come in. <laughs> and now, while we don't go to the New York Times to buy and sell our home anymore, we go to this app. And and then we had uh, get a job. Well, there's a site called LinkedIn, <laughs> right? <laughs> And and even if you you look at what the New York Times did by focusing and have a you know a business section, I think it was Monday or Tuesdays they had like the business section, right? And then they expanded out and had it had it every day. Well, then what happened? Well, you have like the Economist magazine get focused in on those areas, and ESPN get focused in on this on on the sports and take away your sports page that you were so famous for, right? And so so again, what you're trying to do is you're innovating around your current customers and then in the in the end you end up losing because these disruptive technologies which are again considered inferior at first just completely eke away at your core business i heard something today that absolutely blew my mind and to what what what's ultimately left of the new york times ron do you know what their number one driver in profitability or growth is in in the last uh, two years it's got to be digital subscriptions it is not well it is but to what and it's not it's not to the not to the new york times itself it's to their crossword puzzle app wow okay <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's interesting I, yep. that must be included in their digital uh, subscription numbers probably so but that that's that's their hook and what's wild about that when you think about it at one point, the crossword puzzle was what it was. It was the giveaway. Oh yeah, it was yeah. the thing that just just they just threw in to keep people amused when they finished reading the paper on the train or wherever it was they were looking at it. Right, right. Oh yeah, that, no, that's a great point about picking off the newspapers. You know, one at a time. You go Craig Craigslist, right? Taking their classified ad revenue, and 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 that was definitely an inferior. <laughs> technology i mean it still is it still is <laughs> lousy html one yeah. website somewhere yeah. <laughs> uh, that's great but yeah it's it's really important i think to understand his his real theory about disruptive innovation and like you said it's not just something that's new it's it's not uh doesn't mean earth shattering it, it's very very specific in the context that he used it Yes. And the, the one thing that he was crystal clear about, and I just want to make this last point as we're getting close to our next break, but the evidence is overwhelming that trying to do both these sustaining innovations and the disruptive solutions inside one organization is absolutely doomed to failure. Yeah. You know, in one of the books I was looking through this morning, I think it's, again, how you how will you measure your life? He talked about this is why companies like even Intel were putting some R and D over in Israel and, you know, these skunk work projects, right. Where you, you did the radical, whatever it was, and you'd spin them out of the mothership. And, and he gave several examples of that uh, for that very reason. It's hard to do yeah. with these. Well, and, and it's it hardened by you know, Tim Williams' thoughts that a brand can only stand for one thing, too. So there's 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 that aspect of it. Yep, yep, which he talked about as well, by the way. He he talked about a lot of things. He talked about culture, strategy, branding, um, all of that. He, he, he tied it all together. He did have a systems thinker mind. Absolutely, yep. 
So, well, Ed, this has been fantastic, but unfortunately we're up against the next break. And folks, I'd like to remind you, go out to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe to the show and get our bonus content that we will record right after this episode. And also you can go out to ratethispodcast.com slash TSOE and give us a rating. We will read it on the air. If you write a comment, we love your comments. They help us get great guests. And of course, if you want to contact Ed or me, sends us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. And now we want to hear from our sponsors. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials commercials plus bonus content go to patreon.com slash tsoe subscribe now and be free you're worth it from the boardroom to you voice america business network We're tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome back, everybody. We're talking about Clayton Christensen. Ed, we just got done with Innovator's Dilemma. Let's jump to a 2016 book that he wrote that we did discuss on our episode. I don't have the number in front of me, but when we talked about what and how people buy, I think we mm-hmm. discussed a little bit of the theories in this book and it, and it was called competing against luck. And this is about the jobs to be done theory of creating value, right? It, it's, we hire, we buy a product or engage a service to, to do a specific job. And ever since I've read that book, I'm still processing it because as we discussed on that show, I think we talked about nine or so different theories of, you know, what people buy, how they buy, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do they buy solutions to the problems? Do they buy good feelings? You know, do they buy a job to be done? Do they, you know, do they buy status? I mean, there's all these different theories. Um, But I, I still think it's a useful framework. And what I was trying to reconcile was how does it pair up with Pine and Gilmore's, you know, experience economy, their hierarchy of value, which is the transformation. Because 
Christensen, who was very precise with words, another thing I really appreciated, he would always define his terms very specifically. His definition of a job is actually customer progress. Now, that, that, that made me think, well, Pye and Gilmore are talking about the same thing when they talk about a transformation you know, you're moving somebody from where they are to where they want to be. I think that's more than progress. I think that's an actual transformation. But yeah, how do you how do you reconcile that in your head? Oh, gosh, I don't know if I do. They I think they're 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 more complementary than anything else. But um, you're right. It's a it's a it's a tough. Tough connection to make. It is. It is because, you know, again, his job is defined as a progress that an individual seeks in the given circumstance. It provides a solution where there are formerly inadequate or non-existent solutions. It, and and this, is, this is where he gives a nod to being more expansive than just a job being done. It's, it's more than simply being functional. There are important emotional dimensions that are often more important than the functional aspects which brings up the whole, you know, Veblen good or, you know, status buying a Rolex watch or a Mercedes for status, right. To show off whatever signaling. Um, so it, I, I think it's an interesting theory. It's a book worth reading uh, because it just, it's so well thought out. I, I just happened to find the Pine and Gilmore a little bit more persuasive, or maybe it's just because I like the language better. I'm not sure. <laughs> Yeah, that that could be. I, you know, it, the example that he uses, which I think is is funny, and there's actually there's some really good clips on this if you want to uh, search these up on the the web. But the job of a milkshake. Yes. And yeah. I, I I just really like that analogy because one of the the things that I, it, it's it's fun fun about it is he says, look, there's different sets of circumstances. In the morning, you're competing against bagels, protein bars, and fresh juice. In the afternoon, you're competing against the toy shop or rushing home early to play a game of of of, of sport. But in, in in the in the evening, it's you know you're, it's it's really a, 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 a sweet treat for the kids, right? And right, right. And, it, and it, so even what I really like about that, you know, we always talk about the the water paradox and the three different notions of well, the water in your basement that's flooding your basement has negative value. The water when you come in out of the desert has infinite value. How do you square those? Here he's saying, well. This, what what McDonald's has to figure out is how does a milkshake sell and it's it, and it's different at different times of the day and I think at one point I forget exactly where he suggests well shouldn't they be they should be uh, easier to drink in the in the evening than they are in the morning because in the morning you want something richer and you want something stronger and you want to say yeah I gotta I really gotta suck this down <laughs> right because you're commuting and you want it to last yeah, right last or, right yeah hot, yeah hot cup of coffee goes cold or whatever during your commute but a milkshake can last for the whole thing and yeah right I, I, he, he does use that example a few times in a few different books and uh i think it's a little bit overblown but okay i get it, it it's <laughs> it's fun though because he's he's thought very deeply about milkshakes ron yes he has he has even the, <laughs> even down to the little fruit chunks in them to make it more suckable so you have to work harder and and then you get you, right. you can justify it in your mind that hey i'm getting my fruit so it's kind of like drinking a v8 you know yeah kind of kind of like that uh. Uh, so an, another book ed that came out in 2019 and um I, I i was so impressed with it i made you read it i think i, I really bugged you to read this book and we've talked about yeah. it 
also on the show, but it's the prosperity paradox. Yes. Where he talks, he's really talking about, you know, alleviating poverty is not the same as creating prosperity. And, and um, although the book never does say that the only known antidote to poverty is wealth creation, the book does explain how countries can create wealth. Now, I think people like Deirdre McClowski and Gilder and Novak and some of the other thinkers um, have, have probably offered better theories than than the uh, this particular book, especially I'm speaking specifically of McClowski's theory on the great enrichment being language and rhetoric and also Gilder's information theory, which I think is far more powerful. But I, I think the book is a great contribution in terms of explaining why it is that market creating innovations can, are what make a, con- a country prosperous. It's not NGOs. It's not charity. It's, it's companies that, you know, really create new markets. And that in turn builds infrastructure and the roads, uh, you know, and all the other things that uh, a prosperous economy needs. And I thought the book did a really good job laying that out. And as I recall, that was the the the, the story of the well, right? One of his co-authors yes. was involved in in building and creating wells for, I forget what which uh, which which country. And what they they found is they were all rejoicing after they had you know built these different wells and stuff. Well, it turns out they went to revisit them. I don't know, six, 16 months or eighteen months later, and most of the wells had broken down because they couldn't get parts to re- to fix them. Right. So they were completely lost. And he realized, well, we, we can't just go in and, and willy nilly build this random infrastructure and think that we're actually helping people. Right. And then leave and they have no way to repair it, and keep it going. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. And the book does a really good job laying what every nation needs and the potential that exists, even in poor countries, because, you know, uh, again, they're looking at non consumption, which I think is a really useful lens to think about things, you know, people that can't afford a phone or to, to have banking or, or what it, credit cards or eye care or whatever it might be. How can we bring those services and democratize them so the masses can get a hold of them? And that in turn is what creates jobs, infrastructure, government, rule of law, all of that. And they even talked about this with, in terms of corruption, you know, yeah, corruption's a terrible thing, but it's the way in some countries you get things done. And so the real corruption is like poverty. It's a natural state. What really needs to be explained is the countries that have less of it. And that's also another useful lens, I think. It is. And I'm going to jump back to a video that I saw of Clayton Christensen do on, on uh, the market markets and capitalism and, and religion. Mm-hmm. And what I think was really interesting, he and I don't know if you've probably heard this story, but he had a professor that was visiting Harvard who was a Marxist professor from China. Mm-hmm. And he invited him over to his house and they had a, had a nice dinner together. And, and he, he asked the, the, the Marxist professor, was, what, you know, what's, what was the most unexpected thing that you've learned in your time over here? And the guy said, I never understood the, the importance between religion and capitalism <laughs> and the connection that for you know, better than 150, 200 years, the 
United States was a ver- very religious and more religious than most nations and that everyone on the weekend went to a church or a synagogue or a mosque and got religion and was was taught that even if your boss d- doesn't see you do do something wrong god will right and the, hence the the whole notion of do the right thing when no one is watching despite the 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 fact that and belief otherwise that's the default value in 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 america mm-hmm. we 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 stop in, at two o'clock in the morning and at least stop at a red light we may proceed through it if no one's coming <laughs> but for the most part most of us will even stop at a red light at two o'clock in the morning and wait for it to turn green yep that is not the default value in a lot of a lot, a lot of places. <laughs> no, not at all. And you and you can't police trust if it doesn't come from the bottom up. You can't impose trust top down. So yeah. free markets and democracy don't work where the default value is not to follow the rules. Right, right. You know, it's it's one of the things um, that James Allworth, one of the um, co-authors to the book, How Will You Measure Your Life, talked about that, that Clayton, even in class at Harvard, would, would bring up religion. And it really made him uncomfortable the first time he did it. But apparently he had this way of engaging people, even atheists or people of different faiths, in a religious dialogue. And it was supposedly quite effective. And he did write a book, Ed, called The Power of Everyday Missionaries, The What and How of sharing the gospel. And if you go and read the page on Amazon, the reviews, other than the ones that, you know, give you warning about this being a Mormon track, um, they talk about how effective some of these real simple strategies are to just engage people in the dialogue about it in a non-threatening way. And that's just really interesting coming out of Harvard. Exactly. Uh, The other point that he makes in this video is that he says economists have done a disservice in saying that management responsibility is the maximization of return to shareholders. And he talks a lot about what we've we've noted before, the principal agent problem. And therefore, what we had to do is give financial rewards to people inside the company who are that that are in alignment with what the, the, the stockholders want. And he says this has caused major, major problems. And he he has an interesting data point, set of data points that I had not heard. And that is nineteen in nineteen sixty, the average stockholder would hold would hold a stock for six plus years. Mm. And then it went way down. Well, now ninety five percent is held for somewhere between sixty days and ten months. Right. Right. Which, if you think about it, ninety five percent of the stocks are actually traded or traded in less than the time period that any given one year financial statement is can, 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 can produce. Yeah. Yeah. No, I know. And, and it's just, it's, it's interesting. That's a, that's a major problem. Yeah. It's a point that Drucker made as well. Um, yeah, for sure. That, that's also, he talks about that, and I'll get a little into that in, in his book, How Will You Measure Your Life? Uh, but Ed, again, I can't believe how fast this is flying by, but we're up against it. And folks, I'd like to remind you, check out thesoulofenterprise.com. 
we'll post full show notes on today's show with all the books that we mentioned and some other interesting videos and things on, on Clayton Christensen. And again, if you want to contact Ed or me, send us an email to ask TSOE at verisage.com. Thanks to all of you who have been writing us uh, recently suggesting topics and other questions that come up. Uh, we really appreciate it. And now we want to hear from our sponsor, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit us on the web at the soul of you can also chat with us on twitter using hashtag ask tsoe now back to the soul of enterprise we are talking memorable mentors here on the soul of enterprise and clayton christensen who passed away january 23rd of 2020 at age 67 due to complications from leukemia. Ron, and he was diagnosed, as you said earlier, with that disease in February of 2010. And in July of 2010, he had a, uh, had a stroke. Somehow uh, along the way, he managed to publish a book on how will you measure your life, which I think was a reflection on what was happening in his life from a health perspective. And so what an amazing story just to be able to get a book published while that's well, you got that going on. But Ron, this is, you think, one of his more profound works, right? Well, it, it's good. I, 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 uh, in fact, I listened to a podcast that Greg, our social media guy, sent us, uh, and it's with James Allworth, who was one of the co-authors with Clayton on that book. The other was uh, uh, Karen Dillon, and he he told some really interesting stories during this podcast. It was a whole kind of remembrance of Clayton and it was, it was really good. And we'll put a link in the uh, show notes to it, but uh, it's interesting, Ed, because you would think it would be very personal and yet it still had a lot of business concepts and examples in it, but he does weave in 
um, you know, personal things about how you measure a good life. And, and here's how he, it starts. It says, how can I be sure that I will be successful and happy in my career, my relationships with my spouse, my children, and my expen- extended family and close friends, and becoming an enduring source of happiness? live a life of integrity and stay out of jail. <laughs> Those were kind of, now the reason he brought stay out of jail, it sounds humorous, but you know, he knew Jeffrey Skilling who mm-hmm. was a Harvard graduate. And he said he was a, he was a good man when he was at Harvard business school. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course he got involved in the whole Enron, Enron scandal and ended up in jail. Uh, but in this book, he does talk about, there are no quick fixes for the fundamental problems of life. He, he says, I can only offer you tools that I call theories in this book. So he brings it and he has the whole theory discussion again, um, you know, and he talks about, I couldn't have told Andy Grove how to run Intel. I couldn't have taught, I couldn't have taught him what to do or how to do it. All I could do is maybe help him on how to think maybe in a different way about some of these issues. Mm-hmm. And that that was really good. And he does have a long discussion, as you alluded to, about incentives are not the same as motivation. And this is where he takes on the, the traditional economists about, you know, it's all about incentives. It's where he takes on the principal agent problem and some of the maximization shareholder uh, value issues. Um, you know, he, he thought that meaningful work was the thing that mattered. Um, and that um, incentives were not the same as motivation. So he spoke a lot about intrinsic motivation. He also made this point. He says, you have to balance the pursuit of aspirations and goals with taking advantage of unanticipated opportunities. This is, this is that idea of the emergent strategy, right? We have a plan, but we have to react to what's going on on the ground as well. And when opportunities come up, And then he made this point, I've had three careers, first as a consultant, then as an entrepreneur and manager, and now as an academic, none of which he planned, (laughs) not one of them. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, looking back on it, 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 that's true. I mean, yeah, I had a goal to become a CPA, but I never had a goal to become an author or a consultant or a speaker. I mean, I knew I wanted to write a book, but you know, that was it. I didn't know on what I was just inspired by Gilder. Um, but you do kind of have to be flexible. You had told me when I graduated college, that I would be, be talking about pricing theory to accountants. <laughs> what? You, what? <laughs> what? Like, what are you drinking? <laughs> and then he does say in this, he's got a chapter on staying out of jail, which comes towards the end of the book, but he, he starts it with a a quote by C.S. Lewis, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. <laughs> and then he, he lays this theory on you that it's full versus marginal thinking. You know, how, and then he asks, you know, how many of you know, how, how many people do you know that think they don't have integrity? Right. But he says life doesn't come with warning signs. The marginal cost of, su- of doing something just this once seems negligible. So he says it's easier to hold to your principles 100% of the time rather than just 98% of the time. And I think when you look, it made me think of like Rabbi Lappin or just, you know, somebody, an Orthodox 
uh, Jewish person who, who, you know, stays kosher and obeys the Sabbath and just all, and does it just, it's part of who they are. It's part of their behavior, um, made me think of that. And, and they don't deviate from it, even if it might be, you know, beneficial in the moment. So I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I think we we all we all need stuff like that in our lives. And yeah, the, the, the as a as a Catholic, there's been people are asking me, well, well, you know, you don't eat meat on Fridays and Lent. No, I just don't. I just, I mean, I just, it, I, I have I done it by mistake. Yes, I have. But it, for, for the most part, if I if I know, okay, Friday and Lent, I, I just, is it because you're afraid to go to hell? And I'm like, no, <laughs> it's because it's what I do. It's. Right. <laughs> it's what I do. It's what I, that, that's, and this gets to, to, to father Sirico's notion that when we're, we're, we're choosing to do something, it's not oppression and the difference right. between freedom and Liberty. Right. 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 Freedom's a choice. Liberty's the absence of coercion. Mm-hmm. I love that distinction that comes from Peter Block. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. Ron, I think there's so much more that we could say about, Clayton Christensen here. I, I, we, we haven't mentioned in, in this conversation are the, the thing that we always quote from him, right. About data being conclusive only about the, the, the past. Oh, I, did, I did say that in the first segment, but go ahead. It bears repeating. Yeah, no, it, well, and I'm saying, and how you have applied it to your, your thinking about key predictive indicators and not performance indicators. Right. Yeah, that that, and, it's, that a key predictive indicator is a theory that determines what will be measured or determines what the metric will be. And and I think that's such an important point to to make. And and in in a way, I'm sure definitely influenced by by Clayton Christensen in many ways. That we we it, we have to we, we have to point out that what we're looking for is not the performance indicator. Performance just yeah okay. Performance indicators. How do we perform? Well, I that's can tell you data. that after the fact. Yeah, right, that's data. Right. What's what's going to happen in the future? That's that's what I want to know. I want to know what's what's going to cause this company to improve in the future, and just bizarre things like high satisfaction days and and the 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 value gap, the things that we've we've done sh- entire shows on. Um, I I think are just it's critically important to understand that that's that that is based on the work of Clayton Christensen in a lot of ways. Yeah, he, he definitely influenced me on on that and how to apply the, that theory down to the micro level of even something like KPIs. And yeah, just it's a brilliant point. And that's why I get so frustrated with business books that that literally start out usually with something like, there's no theory in this book, just practical sound advice that you can use. Well, no mm-hmm. theory, no learning. Um, also, Ed, in that book, How Will You Measure Your Life? He says, God, in contrast to us, doesn't need tools of statisticians and accountants. No need to aggregate. His only measure of achievement is the individual. And then he wrote this about himself. Only metrics that truly matter to my life are the individuals whom I have been able to help one by one. I think that's pretty profound. Amen. Amen. So thank you. Shout out to Matthew Burgess, uh, our Verisage fellow, who gave us a 40 page summary of Clayton's books and talks. So thank you so much. And Ed, just by coincidence, he's going to be our guest 
next week. Yeah, speaking of Matthew Burgess, we're going to be having an interview with Matthew Burgess on next week's show. We're going to talk about he was so far ahead of us, Ron, that he was doing subscriptions and we didn't even know it was subscriptions. Yep, absolutely. I'm so looking forward to having him on. All right. Well, I'll see you in 167 hours. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. Join us next week, folks, on Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific. You don't want to miss the show. We're going to have our Ferris Sage fellow, Matthew Burgess, on talking about how subscription business model can apply to a law firm and other professional firms. Also, check us out at thesoulofenterprise.com. We'll post full show notes. Thanks for listening, folks. Have a great weekend.